Hello, Husky fans, and welcome to another installment of the Yukon Pod. This is Amon Kidwai. I'm here with Daniel Connolly and Dan Madigan, uh, here to chat Yukon news and also present a deep conversation, in-depth conversation with uh, Howard, the one and only Howard Megdahl to cover the end to the Yukon women's basketball season and WNBA draft. Uh, but to start, the NFL draft just wrapped up. It was a quiet weekend for uh, fans of UConn football who were hoping to hear a Huskies name picked. Uh, zero Huskies drafted, first since 2016. Uh, however, we did see David Pindell uh, get a tryout opportunity with the Tampa Bay Bucks. He obviously played quarterback for UConn, but um, will be looking to play a different position at the next level most likely, probably receiver, maybe defensive back. Um I guess the the question with with respect to the UConn Huskies and the NFL draft is who's going to be the next UConn player to be drafted? Yeah, that's a tough question because uh, as we learned last season, <laughs> UConn football doesn't have a ton of upperclassmen that are really that good. I think really the biggest candidates or the only returning candidate would be Matt Pert. He's been a three-year starter on the offensive line, will be a four-year starter when he graduates, has played both tackle positions. Uh, that versatility will be looked well upon. Uh, the line's been good the last few years, so I think that one would make the most sense. I think if he has a strong season, he could definitely be a contender. And then I think maybe grad transfer like Art Tompkins, the running back, if he has a strong year, maybe he could slip into some of the late rounds just because of his quickness in that, but that's really kind of stretching it. Yeah, Dan, you, uh, you stole my pick there. I thought I was going to come in hot with a, a dark horse pick like Tompkins. Um, you never know with guys with that, that kind of size, he's only five foot eight, um, but he's got, he's supposed to have good speed. Looks like he can catch, catch the ball out of backfield, decent runner as well. So yeah, if he has a good season, might be able to play his way into the late rounds um, towards the end of the draft. Right. It is, it is a roster that's light on upperclassmen uh, by design once Edsel took over. But yeah, I mean, looking at the, the list of, of seniors on this roster right now, it's got to be pert for me in the lead. Uh, and then from there, it's, uh, you know, we're talking about um, – Potentially, I mean, I, I agree that Tompkins has has a possibility. Um, maybe, maybe Donovan Williams as like that fourth receiver kind of guy. Um, but it might be a lean couple of years for the Huskies in the draft until um, the the Randy Edsel project reaches the the glory day, the the re rebirth, the restored glory days that we were hoping for. Uh, along those lines, the Huskies actually one of those seniors that expected to be on the team, Michael Hinton, a graduate transfer on the defensive line from Columbia, is actually headed to Tulane instead of UConn. So uh, we heard that earlier this uh, uh, earlier we had heard that he would be heading to UConn, but now taking his talents to Tulane. In more exciting news, uh, the men's hockey team, fresh off of a promising season with a uh, young and and very talented roster continues to score big wins on the recruiting trail Connolly, can you tell us about the latest uh yukon recruit yeah so they just added a defenseman from russia jan kuznetsov 
I believe is how you pronounce his name. He's he's young. He's only 17, but and won't be 18 until March. But uh, as of right now, both him coming in as a freshman this year in the class of 2019 and in the class of 2020 is both. Uh, both of those are possibilities. So he's a two-way defenseman that's supposed to be able to skate really well, something that right now UConn lacks. And, I mean, it just kind of shows what kind of talent Mike Cavanaugh is still bringing to UConn without an actual hockey rink to use, without a whole lot of history. So I think it's just another sign that this program's definitely on the up. Even though this last year was pretty bad, uh, the freshman talent that we heard about all summer really kind of matured by the end of the season. And that showed when they beat number two UMass in the final, they beat number 13 Northeastern. So it's definitely a big pickup. He was named a first team all-star in the U 17 world championships, which is the best players in the world under 17. And he was a first team all-star, which should tell you just how good he is. And if he comes this year, he's going to be paired with another really good freshman class with three guys ranked in the top 160 of one recruiting services that act, it's not actually a recruiting service. It's a service that ranks all college, all hockey prospects in the U S or playing in the U S. So a lot of those guys don't even go to college. They just go right to the pros or work their way up that way instead of through college. So the fact that they have that many players that high on just a full pool of prospects shows just how much talent they've been getting. And every single year for a, probably three or four years now that the, this upcoming team has been more talented than the previous year. So it's just really showing how much Kavanaugh is building this program. Yeah. And I think Dan, I think it's kind of a, not a make or break year or anything, but it's going to be important to see this program start to make some, some leaps. Um, there's, there's been some highlights, uh, but overall I, I think, people may have expected this team unfairly to kind of pick it up and be, you know, a contender in hockey East right away, which uh, kind of a lot of expectations on Cav, but um, you know, he's been a great recruiter. He's been bringing in a lot of talent. And uh, I think that went over UMass kind of had the season end on a a high note. Uh, But that being said, UMass is kind of the prototype for what UConn can be right. Uh, You know, a public school program in a, in a, very strong conference that doesn't have a lot of hockey history at the moment, but reached the national championship game this year uh, after a rebuild. So I think, you know, it's, it's not out of the question to say that UConn can, can get there. And it's, I think it's a matter of uh, when and not if. Yep. All the infrastructure in place for them to succeed, big fan base uh, about to get a new facility, uh, which should help with recruiting as well. But, yeah, nothing but uh, positive and excitement for the next season of the Ice Bus. Even though this is a this is a recruit who might not see the ice for a couple of years, but um, yeah, no, always good to see more more good news uh, for those guys. Uh, men in men's basketball, with the best news we got lately was that guard Christian Vital would be returning for his senior season. There was a lot of speculation about whether Vital might. Uh, might look into transferring, may think about, you know, going pro, going to the G League, going international, whatever it may be. What it looks like, he had some conversations with Dan Hurley and has decided he will be returning to stores for his senior year. 
I happen to think this is good news. Uh, how do we feel about knowing that Christian Vitale will be back for his senior year, guys? I'm amped about it. I think Christian Vitale is one of the most just UConn-type players that we've had in a while. He just he, he just kind of seems to get it. But the funny part about him returning is he had a big post on Instagram about it, and reading that was just like a roller coaster of emotions because, like, I opened it and it started off by him talking about like leaving for the draft last year and how he's really appreciated his time at UConn, which kind of sounded like he was leaving. Then you carry on and then you see, then he starts talking about how he can't wait to come back. So I kind of thought he was leaving when I started reading that came back and actually he's still, he's still going to stay. So I'm really excited about that. I think we definitely saw a lot of positive strides from him this year into being more of a consistent score beyond just hitting three pointers which is really mostly what he did his first two years here. He definitely showed some more maturity. I think he hit the under on our over-under for technical fouls on the year. And he's just kind of he, – he showed that he was becoming a more complete basketball player under Dan Hurley. And coming back as a senior, I think he can really take another step into just solidifying his status as one of just the most solid players that we've had here. Even if he's not the best, the most talented, he came here as a three-star recruit. And at UConn, we're not used to getting those levels of recruits that realistically we can say were really, really good players while they were here. So I'm excited that he's back. I think he deserves all the celebration that he's going to get for his senior year. And hopefully he can help be a part of the first NCAA tournament team that they that's that UConn's had in the last few years. Yeah, I, I think it's definitely good to have him back I, I think if you know Hurley and UConn were seriously considering you know trying to get to the tournament I don't know if it really happens if Vitale goes to play at the next level where the whether it's in the NBA or overseas so um just because of Altariq Gilbert's health so if him and Altariq can can stay healthy they're going to form a great backcourt and Dan you kind of touched on this but he really kind of played within himself this year. And I think that was part of him, you know, maturing as a person and a player, but also Hurley kind of reining him in a little bit. Um, there's no doubt that he can score. He plays great defense, especially on the perimeter. Uh, and he's a phenomenal rebounder for a guard. So um, having all those uh, kind of skills will definitely help the team. It's going to be his team next year, I think. Even, you know, he might not be the best all-around player. That might be Altariq, but... Um, Vital is, is definitely the heart and soul of that team and the leader and someone that I think Hurley is willing to uh, go into war with. So then what do we make of the fact that, um, you know, there was some tension potentially between him and Hurley um, or maybe that he didn't fit into, uh, into the plans? Um, is there any concern it, it, it maybe doesn't lead to the best, the best marriage for his senior year because – there are guys coming in who, um, you know, are talented who we'll cover in a little bit. But, um, how, you know, do we do we have with Vital now on board? I guess what I'm saying is, um, do we feel like making stronger stronger proclamations about expectations for next season, Connolly? I know you kind of alluded to the NCAA tournament. Um, obviously, it feels like something that we're a little bit more solid. Uh, feel a little bit more solid about now? Yeah, I, I think so because, you know what, I, I remember when the season ended, people were kind of talking about, oh, this team could be really good coming back next year. And I was thinking about it, and I'm like, 
I don't know, like you got Altariq who's really good when he's healthy. CV, Carlton really came on, but can those guys really power a team to the NCAA tournament? And then I was thinking about it and it's like, oh, that's right. Players can develop now. Like the roster that we have now is not going to be the exact same roster from next year, adding some freshmen. So I think just the way Carlton improved for most of the season and if he can take a big jump over the off season and then continue improving at that rate next season, there's no reason why he can't be arguably the team's best player. And then if CV can make another jump and be maybe not the go-to scorer, but like the second or third scorer on the team, that's huge. Alterique's health will be there. And then you've got a really strong freshman class coming in. That's a really solid group to go with. And that's not even mentioning the wings like Tyler Polly and Sid Wilson, who both had solid years but weren't spectacular. So if you can get a jump from one or both of those two guys, then you're kind of looking at a pretty solid and deep team that should, under with a second year under Hurley, have an entire summer with him where they're comfortable, understand his coaching style. I think they should be able to take that jump and maybe not NCAA tournament expectations, but at least be in the conversation for it all season long into March. Yeah, and and Dan, I think uh, you know Vital and and Hurley might not be best buddies or or anything like that, but they're they're just both two really um, they're both really intense people. So it's it's easy to see if they could butt heads. But I think Hurley is smart enough to know that um, a lot of the success next year depends on Vital, uh, whether he likes it or not. That being said, it'll be really interesting to kind of see how the Hurley's guys versus Ollie's guys uh, kind of. Thing plays into all of this. Not that it's going to be split necessarily like that, because a lot of them have been under Hurley last since last year. But uh, it'll be interesting that if things do start to go off the rails, uh, whether we see guys like Gaffney or Bunai or a Cook, a Cook start getting more and more and more playing time, as you know, those are the first kind of real class of recruits that that Hurley brought in uh, along with Brendan Adams. So it'll be interesting to see if things kind of go off the rails, how that plan uh, plays out, but. If things go as expected, I think it's very possible for this team to uh, be in contention for an NCAA tournament spot. Yeah, I think the question mark was was who, if anyone, was going to leave. And I think Vital was probably the leader in the clubhouse in terms of people guessing that uh, in, in terms of a player who might leave. But um, so far, the roster appears solid. Nobody has added their name to the transfer portal. Um, the Huskies, you know, have a solid core as we discussed with, um, Vital, Reek, Wilson, Carlton. Um, we, you know, we've seen good things from Tyler Polly and Isaiah Whaley as well. Uh, particularly I think Polly towards the end of last season. So there's, there's a lot there. And then I think a Coca cook is someone who will expect to be some, a pretty solid contributor down low early with, with his high ranking. Um, and and what, everything that we're hearing, um, yeah. I mean, Booknight, Gaffney. Uh, I don't know how much more than let's say you know what Brendan Adams. Ha- I mean, I know they're they're higher rated recruits, but I don't know if the role is necessarily there for them. Um, I think some of them. I think one of them may see a little bit more playing time than the other. Um, you know, just just circumstantially, or if let's say you know uh, somebody gets injured and then they have to kind of fill based on that, but. There is still one roster spot open. Um, 
as of right now, this can obviously change the, the end of the school year tends to, to maybe be a time of, uh, of shifting and more names into the portal, but there is one roster spot open, uh, likely looking at a transfer or grad transfer, right guys, any names, uh, we're hearing or seeing out there. Yeah. So I think I'm on the two biggest names here are RJ Cole and Joel Natambwe from, uh, UNLV. So, Starting with Cole, he was a MEAC player of the year last year at Howard as a sophomore. Uh, did over 21 points a game and 6.4 assists. Um, the connection there is that he played for the older Hurley at St. Benedict's Prep before going to Howard. Uh, he just declared for the NBA draft, but didn't hire an agent. Uh, so he's kind of just exploring that process. But he has an official visit to UConn May 9th through 11th. So we might have a little bit more clarity on that then. And then Natambwe was a uh, transfer from UNLV. He entered the portal after the head coach there just got fired this year. Uh, Hurley and Tom Moore recruited him heavily at URI before he decided to go out West and uh, could be a double kind of a double dip there. His brother, Jonathan Kaminga is one of the top prospects in the class of 2021. So uh, it's easy to think that if the Huskies land in the Tom way, they might be able to land Kaminga in a year or two. Nice. Yeah. I mean, I think a, a transfer is a good fit just to help mix up the classes and, um, also, because there probably isn't a guy who uh, is going to come in from, you know, reclassify from 2020. And it'd be good for this Husky team to get somebody who can maybe do some, make some immediate contributions. My thing with a guard is I don't know how, how much a guard will be able to fit into this, um, you know, existing lineup, especially with two freshmen coming in. So if, you know, if you're Cole, you've got to be thinking about that. There's Vital. Um, uh, there's, I guess he's sitting for a year, so there would be potentially neither of them. So never mind. What yeah, well, Cole would be the yeah Cole would be the alpha dog probably after uh, Vital leaves, and you know that'd be a pretty pretty devastating backcourt with with him and Gilbert if it does pan out. Um, but yeah, no, it, it's a good point. It would be really guard heavy. I think that's something that Hurley could probably pull off. Um, teams like this, you know, his team likes to play fast. We've kind of seen that in the past year, so uh, they could certainly make it work, but kind of going along that if, if this team wants to be good this year, uh, either Gaffney, Bugnight, or uh, Brendan Adams is going to have to step up and be that third guard. Um, it might have to be Gaffney just because we never know what Altry Gilbert's health is going to be like. So if Gaffney can come in and, and run the point for a few minutes every game, it could really take some pressure off Altariq, uh and give Vitell time to play off the ball, score, and do everything else he needs to do to help the Huskies. All right, before we head into our interview with Howard Megdahl, please enjoy these ads from our partners at Vox Media. All right, we have a very special segment about to get started for you today. We're going to break down UConn women's basketball, the end of their season, and the start of WNBA season. Cannot think of two better people to be doing it with than Howard Megdahl and Daniel Connolly here on this conversation. Uh the Huskies ended their season with a loss to Notre Dame in the Final Four, uh, familiar fashion. Third straight year, the Huskies lose in the national semifinal uh, after winning four straight championships. A uh, lot of people talking about what's wrong with the Huskies, um, or or is this the end, or is this the beginning of the end? Uh, we'll we'll backtrack from there a little bit, but to start. Just how do we, you know, what, what were our big takeaways about the UConn team um, after this season and the way it ended? I just, it was arguably the most shocking of the three 
losses in the semifinal because like overall, I think Mississippi State, the fact they lost to Mississippi State was a shock, but the way UConn lost this one where they were up nine with seven minutes to go, I remember FISA had a layup and she put that in and like then I kind of like switched my mode to like, all right, so now we're going to start writing about them finally winning in the semifinal. Mm-hmm. And I kind of started getting ready for that. And then they, it, it, the same thing that plagued them against Buffalo where they almost blew that lead, the same thing that plagued them against UCLA, against Louisville, they just didn't have that killer instinct where they could grab the other team by the neck and then just beat them into submission they would just let teams back into games and they survived it three times before in the tournament, but they couldn't do it again against Notre Dame and a team of that caliber. So it's just tough that that's the way that Fisa and Lou's career ends because of how good they've been their entire career. I mean, they've literally won every single thing there is to win except more than that first national championship. So it was just a tough way for really one of the more interesting seasons in recent memory to end. And it's funny because every single other school in the country would take reaching the final four, three years in a row. And only at UConn, is it a like huge failure that they haven't won any of the times? Yeah. I, I mean, it's funny. We, we talked on Slack. I remember Fisa made that layup and it was just like, all right, so now we started planning around the win because I saw it the same way that you did. Uh, you know, right there in the final four. But I, I agree with you. I think some some useful context is called for here. Um, and leaving aside that uh, I'm brokenhearted personally for Lou that she did not get a chance to play in a national title game uh, because she was injured in the national semifinal back in 2016 and then uh, to lose three straight in the national semifinals. But what this team did uh, given a relative lack of depth uh, compared to just about any other team in the country is amazing. And at some level, it's worth t- keeping in mind that Notre Dame was the defending national champions and by all rights, you know, should have been the favorite uh, and were the favorite against UConn in the national semifinal game. So even though the way in which it ended was disappointing and surprising because you just assume a UConn team will know how to close it out. Uh, you're right, this fit a long-standing season-long pattern of this UConn team not being able to do it. And the fact that this team made a Final Four, you know, is delightful in and of itself and also just reinforces, you know, 12 straight Final Fours. It's just, it's not something that I think we're going to see again. My prediction is that in the same way that UCLA's run, of 10 national titles in 12 years uh, has not really been followed on the men's side. Uh, The women's game is at a similar point historically uh, to where the men's game was when UCLA dominated. And so uh, I suspect as we just see more and more teams able to compete at this elite level, uh, you know, this UConn team will be the one we tell our grandkids about. Yeah, I agree. I mean, obviously, the the run from 2013 to 2016 was insane. That And that was a point where everyone just kind of – they reverted back to, I think, like the mid-2000s mode of just UConn wins everything. They kind of forgot that that chunk in the middle, like the the uh, the, the Baylor-Notre Dame ride mm-hmm. that kind of happened during that time. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, the, the writing has been on the wall that the level of competition in – this game is improving significantly. We saw it even in that 2016 tournament. I remember starting to see my feelings were that the 
the tides were starting to shift. We started seeing upsets in the NCAA tournament. We started seeing, you know, unexpected teams in the final four. And that's indicative to me of, of greater depth, uh, you know, and anyone can beat anyone on any given night kind of thing. And um, so, I mean, that's definitely part of it. Another part of it has, has clearly been UConn's roster over these past three years has probably not been at, um, I'm going to try to use my words carefully here, but not not been at the the ideal state or or the state that even, um, you know, Gino and his staff wanted. I think, um, you know, this year's team in particular was just missing a lot of components that, you know, you when you lose when you lose in a in a obviously Stewie, Tuck, Mariah Jefferson, that's that's always going to be a lot to, to recover from. But don't underrate how much they lost when when Kean Nurse and Gabby Williams graduated and walked out that door. So, well, can, can we talk about that? Can we just the, yeah. the like the 2016 team? Like that's another level. Like like everything you said, I agree with 100. percent But I think it's even starker for for this reason. That 2016 team we may be talking about as the best team in the history of college basketball. That, that 2016 team had eight WNBA players on it. You know, it wasn't just the one, two, three. Like you said, you know, Tia Nurse was a first-round draft pick of the Liberty who was playing a critical role right away. Gabby Williams was a lottery pick who played a critical role right away. And we'll get into it more, I know, later on. But, you know, Fisa and Katie Lou are also first-round, top half of the first-round picks. And you, you add all of that in, and Sanaya John, who was, uh, you know, an effective player at UConn, but has already uh, put up some decent minutes in Dallas, and now, you know, she's going to be in Las Vegas. That is a team that has depth, the likes of which we never saw at any of the Pat Summit Tennessee years, let alone some of the best UConn teams prior to this. And so, so that seems to me like a critical thing to keep in mind. You pointed it out, but... The Brianna Stewart years, maybe because it was so easy externally, maybe because, you know, I, I, I hear this argument against uh, Stewie all the time, like she's not as great as Diana Tarazi because her teams are already up 25, so she doesn't have to come up uh, clutch in the fourth. And it's like, right, because she's that dominant. She's been that dominant that they win early. And that, I think, exacerbates the tensions over what we think of what the UConn roster ought to be as well yeah that team was an unstoppable juggernaut that you could have thrown every single team in the country you could have put together an all-star team of every other team in the country and UConn was going to beat them by 30 points at least like that team was just unbelievable so yeah like people think of UConn domination and that's the team they think of and that's not really fair but then it didn't help that the very next year even with a significantly weaker roster, which was still one of the best in the country, they just blew through everyone again until Mississippi State. So I think that, like you guys have said, that did kind of throw off the perception. And really, I think in terms of recruiting, what we've seen recently is that either the recruits they get are elite stars or they flame out and either sit the bench for four years or they transfer. They really don't have any middle class of the roster whatsoever. Or the whatever little middle class they do have is just freshmen who are going to be stars in a few years. Mm-hmm. Like, they just don't have, like, a Kelly Ferris on this team, like a really solid role player. Or, like, 
just someone who can come off the bench and give them 15 good minutes a game playing strong defense. It's just either you've got your top end players or just the complete other end of the spectrum. And that's what's really been hurting them recruiting wise and just on the court too, because you get into foul trouble and then you don't really have anyone behind that. So, so I was thinking about that too and how, um, there's that kind of solid range type of player and, and maybe, um, you know, maybe some people were recruited to be that player, um, but they left in the early, you know, they left their freshman or sophomore year for that playing time. Um, I guess, you know, do, do we think, um, you know, looking ahead to next year's team, um, you know, how, how do we see starting lineup shaking out? Um, do we think there might be areas where they're looking to add immediate depth? Because, you know, right, right. We've stated the problem very clearly. Um, but is there, and, and I guess, you know, I would say looking at it next year is the year it's going to affect them. It seems to be uh, affecting them the most could be wrong on that, but um, yeah. How do, how do we feel about like, starting lineup next year, starters, et cetera, just, just with everything going on. Well, you know, just to, to tee it up uh, for you, Dan, because you, you wrote a terrific piece on this about, you, you know, the evolution, the, the state of the roster over these years and how it's gotten from here to there and where it's going next. You know, 2017 and that recruiting class is just, um, you know, should have been a group of four who could have helped this team, who would have been the spine of this team going into 2019, uh, 2020. And instead, what we have is a roster that's going to need some infusions, whether it's grad transfers, whether it's, uh, you, you know, late overseas signings. You know, there are things that Gino's going to need to have to do. Uh, and, you know, he and CD are aware of this. It's not like they don't know the difference between having 10 people they can use on a roster and having five that they can use on a roster, but it, it behooves them to do it now because those things haven't worked out because an Espinosa hunter who uh, could have been a significant secondary piece, if not someone who eventually grows into uh, a first tier star is now at Mississippi state. And you saw her, she was extremely effective for Vic Schaefer and they, um, you know, especially once Paulie Bibby went down, really relied on her. And, uh, you know, so next year we're going to get a sense of it. Once uh, McCowan is gone, uh, Vivian's left last year, obviously, and Enriel Howard, uh, it disappears as well. Mississippi State should be uh, giving us good evidence of what might have been in Utah with Espinosa Hunter. Yeah, that that's the recruiting class where you can – look at the weaknesses on the roster and those are of the current roster. That's the only recruiting class that's had any defections from it. Mm-hmm. So that was supposed to be the next, like you said, the spine of the next generation of Yukon's dynasty and Megan Walker's unequivocal people for some reason love to rag on her for not being up to the level of a number one recruit, but she's absolutely worth being a number one recruit. She was phenomenal this year. She was really solid in her role. So yeah, that recruiting class hurts and you kind of look around at their other recruiting classes in 2019. You only have Aubrey Griffin who Gino seems to really like her. Seems like she's higher than her 33 overall rating in the class. 
And then the 2018 class is phenomenal with Kristen Williams and Olivia Nelson Adota. But that's three players for two classes. And actually, the entire senior class is the same size as the rest of the roster right now. There's four players in the senior class. Crystal Dangerfield, Molly Bent, Kyla Irwin, and then Batuli Kamara. And then there's Megan Walker and those three that I just mentioned. So that's that's not how you build a quality roster that lasts. And I, I, I will just I do just want to jump in on Griffin. Yeah. It's worth pointing out. So she's you know, she's an Austin product. Uh, mm-hmm. Just like Sonia John, she's someone who comes in uh, with a real significant maturity. And so while I agree with everything you're saying, it is worth noting that Griffin may be able to help as a freshman, uh, quite frankly, in a way that uh, Kristen Williams did uh, and in a way that Megan Walker did. I think, by the way, to your point about Walker, uh, who, uh, let it be said, is already on WNBA front office radars and mm-hmm. I think is definitely on that path to being a stellar pro when she's finished at UConn. I think she's just still paying for a freshman year. People are still trying to get over the fact that she was a number one recruit and then just wasn't a contributor in her freshman year. I think it's grossly unfair. Uh, I think she went a long way towards erasing that. Uh, and quite frankly, I think she'll erase entirely by next year. But yes, again, like you said, the, the balance, the lack of numbers uh, is what we keep coming back to. Yeah, so they really have to add bodies this offseason and they really need to add a few because it's not like the teams like in dire straits where they're not going to have anyone because a core of crystal dangerfield megan walker olivia nelson adota and Kristen williams is a heck of a core like mm-hmm. i'll put that up against any team in the country and then if you have aubrey griffin in that fifth starting role like that's still a really solid starting lineup but yeah. all respect and but you can't have molly bent be your top backup guard unless she makes a jump her senior year to be the role player, defensive stopper, like just distribution point guard that like we've kind of seen her have flashes of and what it seems like Gino brought her here to do. Mm-hmm. And she hasn't really been able to do, but then the Tuli Kamars really struggled to stay healthy. And like, I, I've noticed during games when they're just blowing a team out that like, the bench will start to go in and then Kamara doesn't come in until like the last like five, three to five minutes, like Mm -hmm. consistently. So I think injuries are always going to plague her. And then Kyla Irwin just hasn't really shown a whole lot of anything the time she's been here. So they really need to bring in something. They have women's basketball gets 15 open scholarships. They never use that many. The most they've used since in this decade is 12. 11's like their average. I think you can live with a 10 person roster. If you get maybe like an international kid, like Carl Adamek of the journal Inquirer reported, they were looking at Anna Makarat of Poland. She's a Polish point guard. I haven't seen anything about her possibly signing with her team unless you have Howard? Uh, not not as of now. Okay, uh, yeah. So she's still an option to come in. I think that would be a solid pickup because yeah. she could hopefully come in and be a nice point guard off the bench. And then I think grad transfer after that is the way to go because you can just get someone in short term that can just fill a need that you have. They're a grad transfer, so they should be a well-rounded player, or at least able to contribute, unlike maybe, maybe bringing in another freshman. Mm-hmm. I also wouldn't hate the idea of bringing in maybe like a, a transfer or two that has to sit out because they have so many open scholarships. And for 
2021, they have six players currently on the roster. So I think also a transfer, they're going to have four upperclassmen in 2020, 21. So I think if you do get a really solid 2020 recruiting class, you still want some more veteran presences on that team. So I think bringing in a transfer that could maybe come in and play right away if, I mean, I'd expect someone like, we'll get to the class in a moment, but like Paige Beckers to step in as the number one recruit and play immediately. But we know at UConn, it takes time for freshmen to really make an impact. So I think if you could get some transfers that sit out this year and then can come in next year and kind of guide the transition of the freshmen into more of a role, I think that would be a really savvy pickup. But the tough part about Gino is, I don't know if it's a tough part, but just the way Gino is, he's not going to bring in recruits just for the sake of numbers. He's right. only going to pick players that he likes. And clearly the talent pool of players that he's willing to bring in is dropping pretty steadily. So right. they they need something because you just can't go into the season with eight players. Notre Dame had, the year they won the national championship, four starters got injured. I, UConn wouldn't be fielding a roster if that happened. I feel like, you know, I just want to touch briefly on, you know, you talked about Bent and her arc. It actually reminds me a lot of Sanaya Chan's arc here, uh, where she really didn't get regular playing time until her senior season. And so that for really for Chan alone, I have at least some degree of optimism that, you know, perhaps we could see something similar out of Bent. But to your larger point, this is a question I probably should ask Gino at some point, which is, would you rather get to the final four with a roster where you play six people or win a national championship with 11, five of whom you don't think are up to the UConn standard? Because you might be able to do it. It might be a better, more effective way uh, of getting there uh, and, and gives you more of a margin for error, but at the cost of driving Gino crazy, for an entire year at a whole other level. I don't know that Gino wants to do it. And, and since he's proven he's been able to uh, get to the Final Four every year, even if even if you have half or, or less uh, of the scholarships being used by players that uh, that he has on the floor at any given time, uh, you know, maybe that's uh, the thing he'd prefer this time in his career. He's probably earned it. You know, 12 straight final Exactly. Four. Yeah, he's, he's, he's in a very powerful position exactly. of being the best coach ever in the game. And um, particularly in Connecticut, but even in general, I mean, you know, hard to question him, his, his methods and obviously the success he's had. I think that that is a part of it because these are the times, right? UConn is, um, you know, UConn is where it is in the conference set up as well. Something worth mentioning when it comes to recruiting. Um Kids are more aware of their options. The transfer portal exists. Um, you know, we just have kids these days. We just have more information going around. So, you know, we're more likely to have highlight videos of the 40th best women's basketball recruit in the country than we were five years ago, than we were 10 years ago. And, um, you know, someone, someone in basketball recruiting kind of when I got started covering that told me, you know, Nobody, nobody goes to college thinking they'll be the backup point guard, you know, and, and it's probably especially true of UConn, you know, like mm -hmm. there's probably no women's basketball player who gets that call, who gets that scholarship offer and doesn't think, wow, I'm going to be like a starter on multiple national championship teams, you know, and, and then, um, you know, has the wherewithal to say like, let me, let me stick through, even though it looks like I'm being passed by, by, you know, 
Kristen Williams who came through or whoever, you know, whoever it might be. But um, then that becomes that, that next level of, of Gino needing to um, be more attentive to the transfer market and, and start to be a little bit more receptive to it. Um, because, you know, I think this, this idea of, of kind of lacking depth and it being a problem has been, we've been kind of bandying about it for, for a couple of years now, but then we kind of, shut up because they get to the final four and well at some level who the hell am i yeah gino has been to 12 straight final fours um i i you look at my resume i've been to zero final fours as a participant i've covered them you know so i i probably should defer to gino until he misses a final four at least yeah i coached an eighth grade basketball team and i think we got knocked out in the first round so i'm also not one to question that so it is what it is. That's We're a, just here to talk about it. The competition is very high there. I, I think in terms of the, you know, the, looking at the team and what they need, um, you know, something we talked about, I think a lot this year was just, they don't have that. They did not have that hyper competitive edge. Um, mm-hmm. And, and obviously they had it in spades on the 2016 team. Um with a crew that was both, you know, both excellent and willing to play as a team and, and really did have that. We are going to stomp you, you know, mentality and, and kind of meanness that they, when they needed it, I think about that, the South Carolina road game that year mm-hmm. where it was like one versus two. And it was like you know, 20 point blowout by halftime. I, I was like, wow, this is <laughs> we are seeing. So, but you know, I think, I think even Gabby, uh, you know, Gabby and Kia to some extent had that mentality. They had that. Yeah. Um, and I, I just, I, uh, I think the world of, of Nafisa Collier, Katie, Lou Samuelson, I, I don't think that was their mentality. You know, Nafisa Collier is just kind of a quieter person. And I think, um, you know, Katie Lou was starting to find it, figure it out like her senior year. This is, this is it for me. Let me, but I just, I just don't think it was kind of her natural personality. I know this is, making kind of wide large judgments here but um you know i just didn't i don't it didn't seem like it was in her personality maybe to be that way on the court so well also asking a lot of her right asking Mm -hmm. her to to be um the the singular killer asking her to do it on a team where she had to carry a lot of load and asking her to do it once we got to the postseason uh while fighting a back injury so i mean that that's a lot to put on any one person uh, killer instinct or not, you know, you know uh, w- without taking issue with the, the larger questions, which uh, honestly we'll start to see answered with her at the Chicago sky level. Yeah. Yeah. But then at the same time, like that Louisville game, like she grabbed Louisville by the neck mm-hmm. and was just beating the crap out of them. And she was hitting every single shot that she took and she knew she was going to hit every single shot. Then sh- she follows it up at Notre Dame by not making a shot or not scoring a point in the first half. It, it was just that kind of disparity, I think, was more the frustrating part. And then I remember down the stretch of that Notre Dame game, when Notre Dame's coming back, Agumbawale is hitting these shots, hitting big shots to get Notre Dame closer and closer. And then UConn, every single time, someone else different is touching the ball, which is great, but when nobody else is scoring and you can't just look at someone and go here, you're going to score now because that's what you do in big moments. Like Notre Dame was doing with a Goomba Wale. Mm-hmm. That's I think when that really reared its head, because a lot of times I think 
that narrative that they don't have the go-to score was a little overblown, but in that sense, they really needed a basket and no one could give it to them. I, I would love to know, we'll never know the answer to this, but I'd love to know what a healthy Katie Lou would have done her senior year in the NCAA tournament. Cause I, cause I agree with you. And look, Arike is an assassin. The, re- the reason why yeah. I think teams are going to regret having let her slip to five in the WNBA draft is because Arike does something that very few people are capable of doing in terms of, you know, I understand this is a UConn podcast. So, you know, I don't know what you're saying. This, we but, know. You know <laughs> it's just, she is, she's very capable, not just in that one moment uh, last year uh, and then followed up. Uh, but that's something that she does regularly in games down the stretch. I think Katie Lou has that in her, but I do wonder how much she was compromised. And we'll never really know the answer to that. Unfortunately, it's one of those great, you know, what might have been. Yeah. So do we see anyone on the roster right now, um, you know, who, who kind of might have that edge? I'm feeling that vibe from from Kristen Williams, um, but I know you guys are way, way uh, deeper into it than me. So I'd love to hear what you guys think. I, I think Megan Walker is the one who has that. Even more. You know, Kristen Williams, what I love about her is that she is just happy and unaffected by it all. And she's she's able to just sort of push through. She's got that that great big smile on her face after games, talking about it. If she scored 28, if she scored two, it didn't matter. But Megan Walker, I felt like, and we saw it a few times in the tournament as well, had a sense of the moment, had a sense of that need to step forward. Uh, and I could see her uh, grabbing it as well. But, you know, in, in both of those cases, look, the, the amount of talent there is overwhelming. So I think you have two potential opportunities for that. It is, though, really rare. It's, I, you know, I, I don't think that 2016 team had a lot of it outside of Stewie. Uh, but again, what Stewie is, is just a generational talent and a chance, you know, assuming good health and assuming a full recovery, a chance to make a claim as the greatest player in the history of the sport. So, you know, looking for that, I think is hard, but it's another way in which that 2016 team uh, stands out where you don't, don't just have the depth of the eight WNBA players, but you've got Brianna Stewart at the very top of it. Yeah, and I feel like Kristen, uh, I'm sorry, Megan Walker's role in this year's NCAA tournament might get a little overshadowed because they didn't win, but she came up huge, like, and it felt like every single game. So I definitely see your point, but I think if you're the type of player that guarantees a national championship the first time you ever meet the media, I think you've kind of got just a different level to you, like Kristen Williams did. So I think she's going to ruin a lot of dreams over her next the next three years of her career just because scoring 28 points in your first big game at Notre Dame and – she really turned it to a different level once the NCAA tournament starts. You can just tell, like, it almost seemed like during the regular season, she was like, I, I can't be bothered with these, like, plebeians of the American Conference. Like, just give me the NCAA tournament, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start ruining some stuff. Imagine, imagine her as a senior with Paige when she gets here. Ooh, that oh, is a terrifying combination. Yeah, I mean, and you want to talk about somebody who has that attitude, who has that, yeah. that level, that that. DT level, that Brianna Stewart level, that's the vibe you, A, get from Paige from anyone you talk to, and certainly in, in, in my experiences uh, talking to her as well. 
So yeah, why don't we why don't we talk about those two for the for a little bit? The Huskies landed two uh, class of twenty twenty recruits, uh, so somewhat relevant to this conversation about building out the roster. Um, both seem to be excellent. The headliner would be uh, Paige Beckers, who Howard was just talking about, number one ranked recruit out of Minnesota. Um, what do we think about her game and how her personality fits? Sounds like you you think she's got some of that killer instinct. So that's yeah. Good. Yeah. Well, I, well. So let me take Paige and then and then Dan, if you want to uh, grab on Nika and and Ed as well. But I, you know the the thing that I keep hearing about Paige that keeps coming back is she is the best prospect possibly since Stewie, certainly since Asia Wilson got to uh, college basketball. And there are numerous reasons why. There's the fact that she's got uh, size already that allows her to profile as a one or a two. She's already 5'11", um, if not even six foot. She's definitely uh, taller than that. I mean, we were at the final four and so she, you remember, she right? was not 5'11". She is taller than that. And that I would be surprised if she's over six feet. And so, so then the question comes back, all right, so if, if she's at that and she's not till class of 2020, are we talking about someone who could ultimately be 6'3", 6'4", 6'5", you know, by the time she's playing in school? The point is, all that does is increase further her type of flexibility, right? She's already someone where you've got the size of the one, two, or the three you can play her at. Um, you know, can she eventually be someone who you could even play as a stretch four? I mean, it, it certainly seems possible with the game she's got, which is uh, an elite perimeter shot. Her, the thing to see about her and the thing to, uh, I think, treasure about her game already, her plus-plus skill, is the way she sees the floor and the fact that she's able to find teammates in spots you just never would imagine somebody's capable of doing at the collegiate level. She's able to do it in high school. And so from that perspective, having somebody who's able to run the consistent, you know, Yukon motion offense and be part of that uh, is going to be remarkable. And and that goes back to, again, you know, I, I hate to make Stewie comparisons because they're unfair to everyone. However, what made those teams so dominant offensively was the fact that she was capable, Brianna Stewart was capable of like a point guard seeing everyone on the floor and Paige is going to be able to do that as well. And you may not even need her to be the point guard as she's doing it. Yeah. And from talking to her, her mentioning that she likes to get Diana Taurasi and likes the way she plays. I was watching one of her highlight clips and she made some play where I think she like drove to the rim, laid it in a tough layup and then like just, lands back on the floor and flexes in like another girl's face and runs back. And it's like, yeah, there's some Diana Taurasi in that. <laughs> so it, she's a huge pickup. I mean, you obviously want to get the best recruits year in year out, but I mean, I don't think she could be coming at a much more perfect time because I think regardless of if they, if UConn gets any additions this season, it's going to be kind of a transition year. So then kind of handing the torch to her in 2020. I mean, I don't think, it's an exaggeration to say this 2020 recruiting class is one of the most important in recent UConn memory because it's basically going to be, is UConn going to stay as, I don't want to say mediocre because there's definitely not mediocre whatsoever, but just below UConn standards, or are they going to get back to winning national championships? And I think this class is going to decide it. So I think it's really good. You have someone like Paige who is a great distributor wherever she's going to play when she gets to UConn, because when you have a great distributor, people who like to score are going to want to play with her. Mm -hmm. 
Two players where UConn's on their finalist list is Hannah Gusters, a big from Texas, and then Angel Reese, a wing from Baltimore. Two top 10 players that UConn's going after. Those, If you can go to those two and say, yeah, we have the number one recruit. You come here and Paige is going to be able to find you down low. She's going to be able to find you on the wing. You're going to be able to be the number one scorer on this team, even with Paige on the team, because she's such a good passer. And then the second player they already have in the class, Nika Mule from Croatia. She's also a point guard. And when we talked to her, she said like one of her best strengths almost to a fault is she's so unselfish Mm -hmm. that she's very much a pass first point guard. So you've got these two great passers already in the recruiting class. I mean, that almost helps recruiting even more because then you can just pitch scoring to people. And I don't care who you are as a basketball player, every single basketball player wants to score the ball. So having those two is a really, really good base for UConn to start on with this class. And it hopefully will build into one of the best classes in recent memory. And just, just a brief add on to what Paige also said to us, which is that she wants to be active in uh, helping to bring other people, other great players to play with her. And so so I would not be surprised, uh, let's say on upon information and belief, that page will continue to play that role. Well, that's good. Yeah. I mean, I think the way, the way Gino operates or the way the recruiting has been going, it might make sense to just bring in a, a, a group of five starters to come in just in case <laughs> and cover, cover all, all of the bases. So I got two more questions about, about the current team and then we can talk about the WNBA draft. Um, so first question, we, we have not mentioned really crystal Dangerfield. Uh, in, in this conversation, and uh, I think she's really good at basketball. Um, I've heard that. Yeah. And uh, let me check with my sources. It's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's weird that she's kind of in this, um, uh, you know, unspoken place. Kind of not, not, not the first name someone thinks about in terms of like who UConn's going to look to and and that kind of stuff, especially for next year. But um, I mean, it's, it's her senior year next year, and uh, you know, she's been contributing since day one. Uh, so it's going to be her senior year. The second question is, you know, what is, what is our outlook for, for that year? I think we kind of touched on it a little bit, but let's get some early predictions on, on what kind of team this will be in, in, uh, uh, we'll call it five months, start of 2019, 2020 season. I was going to say, I'll just tip my cap to what Dan said, which is that, you know, with the group that they're bringing back, they're going to be competitive with anyone in the country. And, you know, that, by, you know, by extension starts with Crystal, who, all right, so like, uh, hazard of what I do, I've obviously been thinking a lot already about the 2020 draft. And you say, all right, well, a healthy Lauren Cox is almost certainly going to go number one. Uh, Sabrina Ionescu is going to be in that conversation as well. Uh, and then who else beyond Crystal Dangerfield is going to go uh, number three? Hard to imagine there are any other players who combine, you know, her court vision, her ability to hit the shot, not just uh, from beyond the arc, but well beyond the arc, which makes a huge difference, uh, especially at her size. Uh, she's somebody who a WNBA team can go grab and plug in as starting point guard right away. And so my expectation is that Crystal Dangerfield is going to put this team in position to compete for a national title next year by virtue of how good she is individually uh, before going on and continuing uh, the UConn tradition. And so, you know, from that perspective, it's, I feel like we're not talking about her because 
her game's complete. Uh, she's someone who does everything very well that you want a point guard to do. Gino loves her. Uh, she was out there, you know, almost all the time, both by necessity and by virtue of the fact that uh, she's incredibly talented. So to me, I, I know there's sort of two questions, but I would answer sort of both in the same, which is that Crystal is as good a point guard uh, as you see out there. I would take her right now, certainly over Kennedy Carter, even though I know Kennedy Carter gets uh, more hype. And uh, I think she's going to be a big part of why this UConn team next year at low ebb, as we've all talked about, you know, I, obviously the hideous decline all the way to merely national semifinalists three years in a row and the horrifying factor that goes into that. Rough time. Uh, you know, oh God, just, you know, like the Great Depression, but for women's basketball. And so um, I still think they have a chance, even at this uh, low point, uh, to perhaps approach a national title all the same. I would just like to request that we stop mentioning that Crystal's going to be a senior next year because that means I'm also going to be a senior, and we really don't need that type of existential crisis on this podcast right two now. Big losses for UConn. Dan, who are you talking to? You're talking to two old people. So, <laughs> right. So I'm still living my glory days, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think I think Crystal is definitely underrated, and she's a great passing point guard, but it is kind of concerning that there were a couple games in the NCAA tournament where she really, really struggled shooting the ball and scoring and games that UConn needed her to be scoring in. Mm. And I think, and against UCLA, she did come around and started making some big plays, but she really needs to be a consistent scorer for them next year on top of maintaining how good of a passer she is, because she's going to be looked upon as probably the second or third scorer on the team, depending on the strides that Megan makes, because I think, Kristen is just going to take a whole nother step next year, but mm -hmm. um, she really has to be a consistent scorer. And she's shown that she can hit a three from anywhere on the court. It seems like she's better from five feet behind the three point line. So I think that's the step she needs to take next year, but that's a reasonable step for her to make because when was the last time we did, we saw a player kind of stagnate that was as good as crystal is under Gino, she's going to keep improving and she should have a really, really good senior year. And I, we talk about how they're going to be weaker next year, but I don't think they're going to be bad. I think like a number five preseason team is a very reasonable spot to put them in. Cause they still have that four, those four core players that are as good as anyone. And I think, someone like Olivia Nelson Adota is going to make a huge leap this summer. And she flashed her scoring in the NCAA tournament where she can hit like foul line jumpers. She can drive to the rim. Like she's a six, two point guard. She can, if she can get better at finishing around the rim where last year she would kind of fire the ball at the backboard and occasionally it would happen to go in, but she's already an elite rebounder. She's already an elite defensive player. If she could just get to being a good offensive player next year, that is a terrifying presence for teams to try and defend. And something so, new, something different for UConn. Yeah. Seen really since the graduation of Kia Soaks. Yeah, exactly. So that could add a whole different element that maybe makes them a little tougher to defend. The As for maybe a prediction, I they, obviously they lose, which is a prediction in itself, but they've got an unbelievable non-conference schedule next year and an unbelievable home non-conference schedule next year. So these are the home games. They've got Baylor, Cal, Notre Dame, Oregon, 
Oklahoma, Tennessee, and Virginia, all of whom are pretty high-level programs. Oklahoma is not as good as they used to be, but they gave UConn trouble this year. And then Virginia is more – will be better next year too. They were very yeah. – there's a lot of – I mean, Taylor Robertson's on that team. Maddie Williams is on that team. That's a good young team. And Sherry Cole's a terrific coach. So exactly. That, that's not a gimme game. So that's a tough game. Dayton has, hasn't really been as good as they used to have been. That's on the road. They played DePaul, Ohio State, Seton Hall, South Carolina, Vanderbilt on the road. I've uh, made my feelings clear on South Carolina on this podcast before. But, um, I mean, they've got just a lot of talent, which is an issue to deal with. DePaul is always going to give them trouble. So there's a lot of tough, tough games it, it's almost like every single non-conference game you're dealing with something, whereas usually there's a couple throwaway games during conference schedule. Like Vanderbilt will probably be a throwaway game, Seton Hall. But still, like that's just a lot of tough games where if you don't have a lot of depth or if you have the freshmen playing a major impact, it's easy to see them slipping up. I mean, I think Oregon, regardless, is going to be tough to beat that anywhere you play even at home, that team's a juggernaut. Oh, so yeah. I think they probably lose, let's say, say three games they lose, and then I think they're going to get to the Elite Eight again. And as a uh, April 26, 2019 prediction, about a month, less than a month from the last Final Four, I think they don't win that Elite Eight game this year and they miss the Final Four, but... I uh, reserve the right to change that prediction anytime in the next 11 months. Horrifying. Horrifying. <laughs> yeah, but a bunch of people in Connecticut just got terrified. I won't predict they've missed the Final Four until they miss the Final Four. Until, until I see it with my own eyes happen, I have them back in the Final Four. Yeah, and I think just to one, – one of the – you know, one of – Gino's best coaching jobs recently, I think, was that 2017 team, the one right after the big three, where a bunch of people stepped up. I mean, you know, Gabby Williams made the leap that year into like amazing all around basketball juggernaut. And, um, you know, even Nafisa kind of broke through that year. So in that kind of season where they needed four or five different people to take a decent sized step up and forward. Uh, they were able to do that. And so I think that's what is, you know, a good good reason for optimism, even though uh, obviously they lose two extremely good players, uh, you know, just amazing, amazingly, you know, valuable and consistent players. Uh, Nafisa Collier, uh, oh, I guess Samuelson was drafted first. So out of the, out of the two of them, she was picked fourth by the sky and then, uh, Collier sixth by the Minnesota Lynx. Um, why don't we talk about, uh, yeah, like how that went down, what their fit is with those teams. And then I think maybe in the future next week, we can talk about, uh, the rest of the UConn contingent in the WNBA. Of, of which there are a few. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, well, go ahead. Dan. So I, I was just going to say, cause Howard knows significantly more about the WNBA than I did, but I was going through all the mock drafts and putting that together. And I think all but one had Lou going ahead of FISA and every single mock draft put Lou somewhere between like the seven and 10 range. So I personally was really surprised to see Lou not only go before FISA, but to have her go somewhere like number four to the sky. 
But, I mean, I don't think it's undeserved. She's been one of the best college basketball players in her in the country throughout her career. And then I think FISA, honestly, was a little low at six. I can't imagine there's five players you would realistically want just in a vacuum on your basketball team besides FISA. But, yeah, just more UConn players in the WNBA. And Howard, like I said, knows much more about that than me. So I'll give that to you. No, but, but I mean, look, you're, you're right about both of these things. And so let's take them each in turn. At one point, and ultimately I had her a little bit lower down, but um, I, I thought you could make a case for uh, Lou to be the top overall pick. And the reason is simple, that she does everything you need a WNBA player to do. Uh, her turnover percentage uh, is below uh, 10% once again. You know, again, in the single digits, she takes care of the ball really well. She's an elite pass. Her assist percentage was north of 20. Uh, I want to say each of the final three seasons of her career uh, off the top of my head. And so somebody like that, who's a plus plus three point shooter, uh, who's a solid finisher at the rim, uh, someone whose defense is better than people give it credit for being and who has length moreover. So she's going to give you all kinds of problems while uh, potentially hitting those shots. If she's at the two or the three, uh, she's just going to be able to shoot over uh, whoever her defender is as well. You could also play with the four and some smaller lineups. That's someone built not just for the WNBA, but where the WNBA is going. And so what I think surprised many people, myself included, and I, I should have known, you know, James Wade uh, has a different way of thinking about things, but because this is his first head coaching gig uh, at the WNBA level, we don't know yet how he intends to play. Uh, but just from a more traditional lineup perspective, uh, they drafted three and four in 2018. And Gabby Williams, Diamond to Shields were the picks. And the idea was, all right, well, these are going to be the wins for a long time to come. Of course, that was done under Amber, uh, Amber Stocks, uh, James Wade's predecessor. So exactly how Katie Lou fits in, do the three of them play together sometimes and you know, essentially a Chicago Sky lineup of death without a center? Uh, how do they integrate with what uh, Steph Dolson does at center, uh, another elite uh, former UConn uh, player in the lead? It remains to be seen, is Gabby, uh, you know, your sixth person off the bench, uh, and somebody who provides rebounding and defense and Diamond and Kay Lou are the starters. I don't know the answers to that. And we'll find out soon enough. It should be fascinating. But the fact of the matter is she had the talent to be the fourth overall pick, if not higher. I think it was more a question of fit. Now, on FISA, <laughs> you talked about people were surprised to see her last. Uh, people were gratified in Minnesota to see her last because Minnesota desperately wanted her. And Nafisa Collier, in the same way that she's a prototypical Geno player, she's a prototypical Cheryl Reeve player as well. And she does so many things in a fundamentally sound fashion that it is easy to see how she's going to be a useful, helpful player uh, for the Minnesota Lynch for a long time to come. They weren't looking for a number one scorer in that spot. They used other slots to be able to add things like shooting, uh, whether you're talking about, you know, bringing Sierra Dillard in or that amazing trade they made, trading one of their second round picks uh, to Connecticut for Lexi Brown. That was a 
crazy value deal for the Minnesota uh, Lynx as well. And Jessica Shepard is extremely talented and going to help them uh, quite a bit right away. But Nafisa Collier is somebody who's going to play elite defense for them. Uh, they're going to be able to switch her out uh, in a variety of ways. She has a chance to have a higher ceiling than Karima Christmas Kelly, even, who's a really talented player. They brought in via free agency and pairing the two of them uh, for long portions of the game will create all kinds of matchup issues for everyone the Lynch play. So, you know, people are counting the Lynch out with uh, Lindsey Whalen retired and Maya Moore out for 2019 and Rebecca Brunson uh, still questionable. But the fact that Nafisa Collier is going to be able to come in and help right away will go a long way toward, I think, plugging that hole now and making them especially dangerous come 2020 when you can put her in a lineup alongside Jess Shepard and next to Maya and Sylvia Fowles, who, uh, again, for my money, is the best five in the history of the league. Yeah, let me just ask you a question quick, because, yeah. um, like, usually UConn players picked in the top ten, those are, like, locks to be, at worst, really solid players in the WNBA. Mm-hmm. So I feel like, just in, in my own head, if I was a WNBA executive, the thing that would scare me off about Lou is that her injury history she really hasn't stayed healthy in college and the WNBA season added with having to go overseas is significantly more of a grind. Like were there concerns that you know of about her staying healthy? Cause I think injuries would be the only thing that would derail her career. Yeah. I mean, huge concerns. You could argue that they made a difference in terms of where she was drafted this time around. If you look at her numbers, junior to senior year, she went from 47.5% from three to, I want to say, 37.8% from three, somewhere along those lines. So her numbers dropped in her senior year. But, you know, Kelly Stacey had this amazing article uh, about everything that Katie Lou went through her junior year, you know, with an ankle that was like all but amputated. And she managed mm-hmm. to play through it and have this incredible year that she had. I heard from a WNBA agent after saying, oh, my God, you know, if, if I were representing her, you know, I would be freaking out about this because, you know, it goes back to a window into just how much she struggled with that. You know, the the biggest hope for someone like Katie Lou, uh, and I wrote about this uh, just in larger terms after Stewie's injury, is that the league and the Players Association in their current CBA negotiation find a pathway to getting more more folks to stay home rather than go overseas uh, during the WNBA offseason. And you know, it's just it's hard to think of somebody who would be more positively affected by that than Katie Lou Samuelson, who deserves to have, just as all of her colleagues do, the opportunity to rest and recuperate uh, in, in a proper offseason. Yep, obviously, Brianna Stewart uh, f- falling victim to that uh, with, a, with a bad bad injury that will keep her sidelined for this this entire WNBA season. So as we discussed kind of three huge UConn stars in uh, Stewie and, and Maya Moore and Tarasi. Better not forget her. She will, she will not. Yeah, not, not playing this year. So um, still plenty to take a look at, and we can do that. We'll do that in the future. Uh, but for now, that's going to do it for us. Thanks for listening. summer as grassroots season gets kicked off they just wrapped up um 
they just wrapped up a uh, open period. Was was there anything else we wanted to cover? <laughs> Jesus Christ, how long? Everything all right all the, uh, over there, Amon? <laughs> <laughs> It couldn't possibly be me, right? Like at me, right? I'm inside of my home. <laughs> I, I don't. Oh my! Um, I guess I'm gonna go check on this situation. <laughs> Do an ad read. Oh my god. <laughs> well, I have no idea. It's <laughs> it's the back of, it's something in a back. I'm in the back of my house, so I didn't yeah, I want the front door completely peaceful. So, no idea. <laughs> 